Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This morning we come to chapter 11, verse 2, beginning in verse 2 and reading through verse 16. This is God's word. Please give it all of your attention. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You've probably noticed that I don't wear a tie to church. I haven't worn a tie to preach in church for well over a decade. Now, I know that that's not very radical in these days of preachers preaching in T-shirts and skinny jeans, but it was a decision that I didn't take lightly, a decision that I put a lot of consideration into. First of all, In the history of men's fashion, neckties are one of the silliest ideas ever, right up there with powdered wigs and lederhosen. I mean, I ask you, who was the first one to think of making a cloth noose and putting it over your neck and around your neck and tightening it as a fashion statement? Secondly, the only thing sillier than constricting your airflow passage as a fashion statement, is then going into the pulpit and preaching for 35 minutes with your neck that way. Ties, for me at least, are very uncomfortable, and self-consciousness is the enemy of good preaching. But those reasons were only secondary to the more important reason that I decided to be okay to not only come to church, but to stand in a pulpit without a tie. 
the question I had to ask myself is, what am I communicating to my church culture and to the broader culture by what I'm wearing as I go to church and as I stand before God's people preaching his word? Like it or not, our wardrobe is a form of language that we use to communicate with those people around us. And that language changes from culture to culture. For us, tuxedos and evening gowns communicate honor and prestige. Rumpled shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops, on the other hand, communicate fun and casualness. Wearing all black all the time means you're either Johnny Cash or you're deeply troubled. And as one leading in worship and preaching God's word, it was important for me to dress in a way that communicates reverence for the Lord. So my question was, could I stop wearing a necktie without showing dishonor to the Lord? Was it necessary to wear a necktie in order to communicate that message to my culture, both in the church and more broadly. And so I looked at my culture and did a little analysis of standards of dress, and I realized that our culture has changed dramatically in the last couple of generations. Back in the 1940s and the 1950s, men wore suits and ties not only to most jobs, but also to baseball games and to neighborhood parties. The standards for what is appropriate formal dress have certainly changed. And so I came to the conclusion it was okay to put away my ties. I still pull them out for weddings and funerals, but that's the only time you'll probably see me with one on. Now this may sound like a very trivial issue. In many ways it is. But it's actually very similar to the issue that Paul was dealing with in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Starting here, the next few chapters, Paul's going to address several issues that deal with worship. What do we do and how do we do it when we come together to worship God? And the key verse for this passage, verse 2 through verse 16 of chapter 11, the key verse, the one that gets to the real point, the question that Paul is going to address is verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? In order to understand why that question was important in the first century church in Corinth, you've got to go back and look at the culture of that era. We know very clearly from historical sources that Jewish women, when they went out into public, always went out with their head covered. It was a religious duty. It was a way of communicating submission to the word of God. But also in many, many Gentile cultures of that period of time, and apparently, from what we know from studying 1 Corinthians, it was also a standard in Gentile cultures, and particularly in Corinth. Many women wore head coverings in public and in mixed company of men and women. And the reasons they did it were actually very similar to the reasons that Muslim cultures have the same tradition today. For a woman to wear her head uncovered, or particularly to wear her, her, her hair loose, was a way of communicating provocation to those around her, particularly to men. That's the way it was understood. 
It was seen as flirtatious. It was seen as, in a sense, the glory of a woman, as Paul mentions here. It was her beauty that was meant to be reserved for her husband at home. And some scholars think that in the first century, the reason this was a hot-button issue in the church in Corinth is that many women, even in the culture, were starting to rebel against that cultural standard. They were beginning to go out without their head covered. And it was seen in that culture as not just a fashion statement, but as a statement of rebellion, a rejection of, of cultural standards. And we know from verse 16, Paul says clearly there that that was the standard that was accepted in the churches of God. He says that women worshiping with uncovered heads wasn't practiced practiced in the other churches that he served. So it appears that what was going on, and the reason that Paul must address this issue here in chapter 11, is because women in the Corinthian church had taken this phrase, we've seen it all through these recent chapters, they've taken the phrase, all things are lawful. Remember they were using it in, in relation to meat offered to idols. He says, all things are lawful, and they were saying, I'm a Christian, I'm part of the kingdom of God, I don't need to abide by community standards anymore, I can, I'm free in Christ, I can live the way I want to. And they were applying it to head coverings, and they were ditching them. What Paul is going to deal with here is the same thing he's been dealing with for many chapters now. At the bottom line, this is all about cultural engagement. How does the church representing the kingdom of God engage a pagan culture, a culture that does not recognize the word of God? How do we engage it? How can we be sensitive to the culture and communicate the truth to our culture in a way that is not, that is not unnecessarily offensive? Back in chapters 6 and 7, he dealt with what it meant to live faithfully as a disciple in the cultural context that was permeated with sexual immorality. And then in chapters 8 through 10, we just got done dealing with that long section of what it means to live faithfully as a disciple in an idolatrous culture where pagans were worshiping idols everywhere. And specifically, the issue was, should you eat meat that had been offered, had been sacrificed to an idol? And you remember, as we saw in all those chapters, Paul kept saying, it depends. It depends on what you're communicating to the people around you. Are you in the midst of other believers? Are you in the presence of what he calls the weaker brother, whose conscience would be offended if you ate that meat that at one time in its past had been offered to an idol? Are you in the presence of unbelievers? Are you even, as he says, Lord forbid, in the context of a pagan temple? eating a fellowship meal when you eat that meat that was offered to an idol. How you respond, what you do, depends on what you're communicating to your culture by what you do and what you say and how you dress. That's what Paul's dealing with in all these sections. And remember, we said at the end of the passage we looked at last week that Paul comes to a summary statement at the end of chapter 10. Let me read it to you again. When it comes to cultural sensitivity and cultural engagement, here's his bottom line, verse 31 of chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking, any, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. 
That's how we are to live out the word of God as faithful disciples and how we are to communicate it to our culture. And so Paul is going to take that standard from chapter 10 and now he's going to apply it to this new issue of head coverings. To the women, and he's particularly addressing the women in the Corinthian church that had decided to stop wearing the head coverings. He wants them to consider why they're doing it and what they're communicating to their church culture and their broad culture, broader culture, by refusing to wear the head coverings. Even though head coverings is not an issue today like it was back then, we have this as an example given to us in God's word so that again, we can learn lessons on what it means to engage our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ sensitively and not give unnecessary offense to the offense of the gospel. So how do we decide what to wear to church? Why is that important? I have to begin by saying this is, without a doubt, one of the most difficult, maybe the most difficult passages in all of scripture to interpret. There are all kinds of landmines in this passage as you try to explain or try to understand what God is saying to us in this chapter. Let me just give you a couple of examples. I read commentaries all the time. It's part of my job. Every week I'm reading commentaries. I'm looking to learned, more scholarly, more intelligent men than I to try to understand these passages so that I can bring them to you. And I came across a couple of statements in commentaries this week that I don't remember ever reading before. Let me, let me read them to you. This is from one commentator. He says, In all humility, I confess that I really don't know what Paul intended to say in this verse. Never read that in a commentary before. Another commentator said this, I'm frankly mystified by some of the concepts that Paul introduces in this section. And so, with a great deal of humility and a little bit of uh, timidity, I approach this passage. But I also need to say to you, I don't have time this morning to get into all of the difficult details of this passage. There are going to be some verses that are hard to understand that I'm not going to touch on because I, first, quite honestly, don't have time. I don't think you want to stay here until 5 or 6 o'clock today. Paul begins, he's based, remember, he's trying to teach us how to engage the culture sensitively. And so he begins, how do you do that? He begins where all of us have to begin. And this is his first lesson. You need to go to God's word to determine what are the principles of God's word that are at stake in whatever this cultural issue is, no matter how big or how trivial it is. What are the principles of God's word that are at stake? And so what Paul does on this issue is he goes to the scriptural principle of gender, relationship between genders, and marriage as God designed it. That's why in verse 3 he says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. He's not talking about cultural standards now. He's talking about the standards of God's word, what God has laid out. And he has set up an order of headship here, which is a hierarchical hierarchical structure of authority. And he lays it out with God the Father, Christ the Son of God, the husband, and the wife. Now I know that verse 3 falls hard on the ears of Westerners in the 21st century. 
I know how objectionable this biblical teaching is to our culture. But Paul lays it out as his beginning point. This is what God's word has revealed. I often wonder how Paul would have written this chapter if he was writing it to 21st century Americans. I don't think he would have written it the same way. Because the issues of gender and marriage are very different today than they were in the first century. And if this, his language sounds harsh or insensitive to you, understand that he wasn't writing it to you directly. It's only, he's writing it to the first century Christians in a very different culture, and it's only by understanding how it applied to them first that we begin to understand how it applies to us in a very different culture. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. You know, imagine Paul writing it to first century Christians, not Christians in America in a post-feminist, hypersensitized culture like we live in. One of the difficulties that we have to deal with is what does Paul mean by the word head? He assumes that those reading his words or hearing his words knows what he means. Sometimes in this passage he uses the word head physically, like the head that's at the top of your body, the physical head, literally. But then also, particularly in verse 3, he's using the word metaphorically. And so when you use a metaphor, you assume that your readers or listeners understand all the meaning behind the metaphor. And scholars have argued all throughout church history, but particularly in the last hundred years or so, as this has become such a sensitized topic, scholars have argued long and hard about what the word head means in the original Greek. In the Greek, it's kephale. And what's frustrating to somebody like me, who is not a scholar of that magnitude, when I try to read what the scholars say, what's frustrating is, I've found this, out, this to be true over and over again, is that whatever the scholar's agenda is on the issue drives how they interpret the data of what the word is meant to say. They usually end up with a conclusion that fits their preconceived notion of what gender should be and what marriage should be. So let me just step back and just try to say, here are what, here's what the scholars tell us. This is what we know from the Greek language of what the word head meant, or kephale meant, in the first century. Three basic meanings that we have to choose from, from the way it was used in Greek culture as well as the way it was used in the church, in the writings of Paul and the other apostles. Sometimes the word head, or kephale, sometimes it meant preeminence or prominence. And we still use the word in English that way, the head of the class. In other words, the cream of the crop, the preeminent ones. Sometimes the word head meant chief or leader. And we still use the word that way, the head of a company or the head chef in a restaurant. And sometimes the word meant source. And we still use the word in that way, like the headwaters of streams and rivers where it begins, what's the source of it, where's the water come from. Well, Paul was a very smart guy, and he knew that in Greek that the word had all of these connotations to it, and he actually used the word in all three ways. Speaking of Christ, let me, let me give you several examples. First of all, when it comes to preeminence, he speaks of Christ being the head of the body. Christ is the head, metaphorical head, the body is the church, he is the head of the church. 
He uses it sometimes to mean that he is the preeminent one. He's the cream of the crop. He's the perfect one. He's the, the, the most all-powerful one in the church. He's our older brother who is perfect in every way. He's the preeminent one. And Paul speaks of Christ in that manner over in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, And Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. But then he also writes of Christ being the head in the sense of being the source of our spiritual life, the source of all that is good. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, he says it, he says it there, that talks about holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, the church, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And there you see head being used in the sense that that Christ is the source of the spiritual growth and vitality and health of the church. But then he also often speaks of Christ as being the head of the church in terms of authority. And let me give you an example of that. Not only is he the ultimate authority, but he's the authority over all authorities. This is from Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. Or an even more extensive example would be over in Ephesians chapter 1, where he talks about God the Father raising Christ from the dead, and he goes on to say, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you can see clearly in that context that calling Christ the head of the body and the head of all heads, he's speaking about authority, about leadership. And so that's Paul using the word in all three terms. And so when he says here in chapter 11, verse 3, When he calls the husband the head of the wife, we have to leave this less clear passage, and I don't think there is a less clear passage in all the New Testament than 1 Corinthians 11. We have to to interpret this difficult-to-understand passage in light of the clear teaching that Paul gives elsewhere. And that would clear, on this issue, would be Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, he's teaching Christians about how to relate to one another. And in verse 21, he says that we are to submit to one another in the Lord. But then he goes on in verse 22 to call the wife in a marriage relationship to a special type of submission. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I don't think it can be any more clear than that, which of the three meanings that Paul means when he talks about headship in terms of marriage. He's obviously talking about leadership and submission to leadership. Clearly, when Paul talks about headship in relation to marriage, he's not talking about preeminence of the husband over the wife. That's not what head means. When Paul uses it, because Paul says in Galatians chapter three, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all absolutely in our essence equal before God as we stand before him, men and women. 
There is no difference. There's no superiority or inferiority. We are equal before God. The problem is some commentators, with their preconceived agendas, they will take Galatians 3.28 and use it to negate what Paul says everywhere else about roles in marriage. We are equal in our essence, in our very being, before God. And we are equally saved by the grace of God. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are all made in the image of God. But that passage, Galatians 3, 28, is dealing, if you look at it in context, it's dealing with who we are as God created us and who we are as Christ has redeemed us by his blood. It's dealing with creation and salvation, not about marriage roles. He's not dealing with that in that passage. But back to Ephesians 5, clearly here he's also not talking about the husband being the source of the wife. In other words, that the husband becomes a channel through whom God pours out his grace and strength. That doesn't come through the husband, it comes through Christ alone. What he's dealing with here is the headship in the terms of spiritual leadership. And you'll notice that he bases this concept of headship, spiritual headship in the marriage, in the order that God created the first husband and the first wife, Adam and Eve. In verses 8 and 9, speaking of them, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. He's referring to the beginning of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And it says there in chapter 1 that God created Adam and Eve in his image. Both of them equally, fully share in the gift of being made in the image of God. But then... Genesis goes on to share about how they were created because God was making a point in the way in which he created them. He created Adam first, and then he used the rib from Adam to create Eve in order to illustrate what their relationship would be like, not just as man and woman, but as husband and wife, when they became one flesh. He says woman came from man. God created Adam first, illustrating the principle of headship. He would be the leader of the marriage, leader of the family, leader of the household. And woman was created not only from man, but Paul goes on to say, for man. Now that sounds terrible to our 21st century ears, but he's not saying it in the sense of possession. He's saying it in the sense of assistance. Genesis tells us that the woman was created to help the man. He was, she was created as a helper complementary to the man. In other words, he didn't create them with the same roles. He created them with different roles in order for them to carry out what they were to do in the marriage. You see, it's not a question about superiority or inferiority. It's a question about what roles have been assigned to you. Now, I don't know if you'll find this helpful or not, but to me, when I've tried to understand this, how could God look at us as equally in his image, made in his image, equally sinners, equally saved by grace, equally saved, no male or female in Christ, how can he look at us that way? And then, having looked at us that way, turn around and say, okay, you're going to be the leader and you're going to be the assistant. You're going to be the, the head of the household. You're going to submit to the head of the household. How could he do that? Because that doesn't fit with our American thinking. Well, it's helpful for me to think of this illustration. What if you wanted to start a company? And by some quirk of circumstances, you happened 
to hire three employees. You're starting with three employees and just happen to start with three employees that were absolutely, perfectly, equally qualified to serve in the role of supervisor. What would you do if you're starting the company, the owner of the company? Would you make all three of them supervisors? Well, of course you wouldn't because a company doesn't work that way. We don't get things done efficiently without roles, without a hierarchy, without authority, without responsibilities being re given and responsibilities for others being given. So what you would do is you would take these equal candidates for the position and you would choose one to be the supervisor and choose two of them to serve under that supervisor's authority for the sake of the company. If we wouldn't run our company with all people having equal roles, why would, we run a, why would God run a family that way? Now let me say this, in all humility, God could have man made woman first and made man from woman, and he could have made man the assistant to the woman, the complementary helper to the woman, and put her in the position of authority in the family. He could have done that. He could have done creation in a different order to present that message. I'd have no theological or any other problem with that, but he didn't. And I don't know why he didn't. You'll have to ask him someday because he doesn't give us that answer in his word. But that's what he did. Matter of fact, the reason that Paul included verses 11 and 12 there about even though woman was made out of man, now man has to be born of woman. It's almost, he's qualifying the point just to make the point clear. We are equals and we're in this together. And as, man, as husband and wife, we are one flesh. We're together for one purpose. And we are inter interdependent upon one another. But I have to touch on one more issue because there's one more biblical principle to bring into this picture in order to not misunderstand what, Pete, what Paul is saying here. And that's the issue of what is leadership? What is authority? In the world, they understand it completely differently than we do in the kingdom of God. In the world, leaders get their way. In the world, leaders have the power. In the world, leaders get to make all the decisions, and they do it for their own glory. But Jesus turned that concept exactly upside down when he came to introduce the kingdom of God on earth. And he, back in Mark chapter 10, listen to what he said to his disciples about authority in the kingdom of God. Jesus called his disciples to, to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what leadership looks like in the kingdom of God. It's servant leadership. It's about being responsible for the well-being of other people. It's not about getting your way. It's not about being selfish. It's about being a servant to others. When you're put in a position of leadership, whether it's the, the husband in a marriage or a father in a, in a household or an elder in the church, when you're put in a position of authority in the kingdom of God, what that means is that you become a servant to everyone under your authority. You are accountable before God. One day, husbands, you're going to stand before God and you're going to have to give an account not only for your own soul and the well-being of your own soul and your own faithfulness to Christ, but also that of your wife.
because you're responsible for her. That's what leadership means. You are to serve your wife so that she would be built up in faith, so that she would find her calling, so that she would be able to use her gifts, so that she could be all that God intends for her to be. That's what authority is. That's what authority in the home is. That's what authority in the church is. It looks nothing like authority in the world. I didn't read, finish reading the passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul talks about wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Let me read the rest of it to you. Paul goes on to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's servant leadership. That's what husbands are called to. You are called, husbands, to love your wife, to serve her so that she can, by the grace of God, become beautiful in the sight of God. That's leadership, and that's what love is, according to Scripture. You thought you were going to get a sermon on how to dress for church, and we end up talking the whole time about wives submitting to husbands and husbands leading wives. It may feel like a little bit of bait and switch this morning, but I hope you understand that we had to talk about the biblical principle, which is very controversial in our day. That same biblical principle is at the root of what was going on in Corinth in the first first century church. Because you have to go to God's word to determine the biblical principles before you start trying to apply them to the culture, and that's the mistake the church has been making for a long time now. We don't go to scripture to get the principles from God's word first. We go to application right away, and we end up going astray. How do we apply the principles to this culture? Head coverings aren't a burning issue in this church. They aren't even a burning issue in our broader culture, unless you're Muslim. But the principles that Paul is talking about in this passage are very, very relevant, if you haven't picked up on that already. First principle from scripture that he's applying to their situation is that God has assigned to each of us a gender, male and female. God has made the the assignment. He is the one who is determined. He is the creator. And male and female are both equally made in his image. And as we live in a culture that has become very confused on assigned genders, We have to acknowledge not only God's principle, but also that the fall, that sin, has distorted and corrupted and confused our views of our own gender and the views of other genders. That's the first principle. God has assigned gender to us. Secondly, God has assigned different roles to the two different genders. And those roles are defined by his word, not by the culture. Let me ask you this, what are the two, as you think about our own culture, what are the two most offensive teachings of biblical churches in our culture? What do people object to so strongly, so often, when they hear what biblical churches believe and teach? First one is, what is our stance towards the LGBTQ lifestyle? What's our response to that? Secondly, our teaching that wives should submit to the spiritual leadership of their husbands. You want to end all conversation in a neighborhood party, bring those, one of those two topics up. 
very unpopular positions that we hold to. But when I hear people offended by those positions of the biblical church, I want to say to them, haven't you ever heard the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is saying? Those are secondary aspects of what we teach. The very center, the core of our message, the very essence of the message we preach to this culture is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, that he became fully man and dwelt among us, and he lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross, and on the cross he died and shed his blood as he was bearing the wrath of God that our sins deserved because he hung there in our place and he paid that price in full. And having died, he rose from the dead three days later. And having risen from the dead as a risen Savior, all those who put their faith and trust in him are forgiven. They are made clean. They are made fully acceptable to God for all eternity and have eternal life in him. And those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as risen Lord and Savior will suffer in hell eternally for the wrath of God upon their sins. Now that's offensive. To the culture. The offense of the gospel is far greater if people really paid attention to what we were saying than what we believe about a lesbian or gay lifestyle or what we believe about women submitting to their husbands or wives submitting to their husbands in the family. But I will tell you this. This is why it's so important to go to principle before you go to application. Churches that have been willing to compromise on gender issues and marriage issues in order to fit into the culture have either have already or are well on their way towards giving up the gospel as well. Because the bottom line is not really about head coverings or neckties or any of that. The bottom line is, did God speak? Hath God said? Is the word of God, is the Bible the word of God, is that the only standard for faith and life? That's really what it comes down to. The real issue in Corinth wasn't head coverings any more than the issue was meat offered to idols back in chapters 8 through 10. It's all about cultural engagement and cultural sensitivity, and it's ultimately all about the gospel. The message that these wives were sending to the church and to the world through this seemingly simple act of refusing to wear head coverings when they gathered for worship was actually, at the root of it, Paul is saying, a rejection of the principles and ultimately the authority of the word of God. That's why he says in verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. That second head undoubtedly is the metaphorical use of the head. She's dishonoring the authorities over her. She's dishonoring her husband by refusing to have her head covered in worship. She's dishonoring ultimately her ultimate head, Jesus Christ, by rejecting the principle at the root of the cultural standard. We're going to address women prophesying in worship on another day. That's another controversy for another day. We'll hit that later in chapters 12 through 14. Paul goes on to say, it's the same as if her head were shaven. And to that culture, that was a powerful statement. Because in almost every world culture, to shave the head of a woman was to subject her to the greatest humiliation and disgrace. He's saying, if you're going to throw off the head covering, you might as well 
throw off your hair and shave your head. It's, in his mind, as shocking as that idea would have been to these women in the Corinthian church, he says, you're saying the same thing. You're sending the same message. Remember Sinead O'Connor? She shaved her head as a cultural statement, as a rejection of standards. That's what Paul's saying to these, these Corinthian Christian women. By refusing to adhere to this non-biblical cultural standard, you're sending the same message of rebellion against the principles of God's word. And that brings us back to the purpose of why we do anything in, in church when we gather for worship, why, the, why we dress the way we do, why we talk the way we do, why we do anything. The ultimate goal of worship and everything else goes back to what Paul said at the end of chapter 10. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. We live. The whole purpose of our lives is to glorify God, to honor our head, to not bring shame and disgrace and dishonor to the head, the head of the body, Christ. In the midst of unbelieving and pagan cultures, it takes a lot of wisdom Wisdom from above that comes from the word of God and the spirit to know how to be sensitive to our culture, to apply the principles of God's word to the culture and be sensitive, not cause any necessary, unnecessary offense, but to do so without compromising the principles of God's word and certainly not compromising the gospel. Do you need to wear a head covering or to wear a suit and tie in worship in order to honor the Lord? It depends. It depends on what message, according to the language that, that your culture knows and understands, what message are you sending? Of course, in this day and age, head coverings aren't necessary for wives because that wardrobe uh, fact doesn't, doesn't say anything to our culture. But we must never compromise the principles of Scripture we need to pray for that extraordinary wisdom that we may stand firm upon the truth of God while aggressively engaging our culture and, as Paul puts it, becoming all things to all people that we may by all means save some. Let's pray. Father, this is not only a hard passage for us to understand, but it's really hard for us to apply it. In our culture, where all the pressures on these issues are so different, and yet, we are so thankful to be reminded this morning that your word never changes. Your design for, for marriage, your design for the witness of the church never changes. Lord, keep us from causing unnecessary offense. Give us a, an acute sensitivity to the language, the, the ways of our culture, so that we might take the principles of God's word and communicate them to those around us in a way that is winsome but yet also avoids any compromise with error or falsehood or paganism. Lord, this is far beyond us. Humble us, make us dependent upon you, cause us to know your word and give us a heart that seeks to love you and honor you and love others as you have first loved us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.